Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, 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 hello! Welcome back to another archaeogastronomical adventure. This is the Delicious Legacy Podcast, and I'm Thomas Dinas, your host. Join me today for another deep dive of culinary time traveling. This time, all the way back to ancient Egypt. Where do we start with ancient Egypt? A unique culture, a civilization that lasted thousands of years, and in many, many respects, as we will understand on the course of this episode, still going on, despite the many conquerors and outside influences. Thanks to the tireless work of many Egyptian archaeologists over the past decades, ancient Egypt is far more accessible to us and more popular than ever before, since perhaps the height of Egyptomania 150 years ago. Aside from the monumental architecture and the writing system, there is a growing interest in everyday life of ancient Egyptians. How and where they lived, what they ate, what their jobs were, and what was their everyday life like. New discoveries, many in the form of texts in papyri, paint a colourful, complex picture of life along the Nile. And, along with these many, many new information, many other questions that need to be answered arise. And, if you were me, then the main one is, what was the food, the cooking and the cuisine in ancient Egypt? Did they bequeath any recipes to us? How did they cook? And what was their kitchens like? Surprisingly, or not perhaps, If you've been following this podcast over the years, the answer is complex, the picture unclear, and the past intertwined with the present, and the thousands of years that passed, and the thousands of years that the Egyptian kingdoms lasted, meaning that we have a plethora of information about the innovations that changed drastically the dishes, foods, and cooking habits of ancient Egyptians. That much, at least, is certain. The enormity of the task of deconstructing and analyzing and finding a linear way of explaining the food of ancient Egypt is demonstrated by this fact that is usually deployed uh, in many other circles. The famous Queen Cleopatra of Egypt 
is closer to the invention of the mobile phones in our modern age than to the construction of the Great Pyramids. And so, for a civilization that lasted so long, a period of uh, 3,000 years, more or less, it makes sense to name-check some interesting, unique ways of how ancient Egyptians lived and perhaps see some of their foods and glimpse on the remains of recipes, if we can call them this. And finally, reconstruct some of the dishes from the deep history of Egypt. And to put things into a bit of a perspective and um, see where the Old Kingdom and the Middle Kingdom and the New Kingdom are in terms of um, the timeline. So the Old Kingdom is a period spanning from uh, 2700 to 2200 BCE. And it's also known the age of the pyramids. And um, after that, we have the first intermediate period, which is described usually as a dark history, a dark period of ancient Egyptian history, spanning approximately uh, 125 years from 2881 to 2055 uh, BC. After that, we go to the Middle Kingdom of Egypt, which is the period in the history of ancient Egypt following a period of uh, political division. The Middle Kingdom lasted approximately from 2040 to 1782 BC and um, stretching from the reunification of Egypt under the reign of Mentuhotep II in the 11th dynasty uh, to the end of the 12th dynasty. Afterwards, we have the second intermediate period, which dates from 1700 to 1550 BC. Another period in the history of ancient Egypt which um, there was unrest and uh, smaller dynasties and so on. And then finally we have the New Kingdom, also referred to as the Egyptian Empire, which was between the 16th century BC and the 11th century BC. And according to most historians, it was uh, the most prosperous time for the Egyptian people and marked uh, the peak of Egypt's power. So this is roughly the timeline of events that we're going to follow on this episode. Of course, there's another thousand years of history after that. Starting with homes and kitchens, there's quite a lot that we know of. There's a depiction of a three-story house belonging to a nobleman, Jehutin Affair, dating to the New Kingdom. The bottom floor lies mostly underground and appears to have been used for storage, with rooms for servants to perform different tasks, such as grinding grain. The floors above were for the owner and contained sitting rooms and bedrooms. This relief is displayed at the Louvre Museum, and I'll post a link on the show notes. Typical big houses of the era had outdoor facilities, such as a storehouse and a silo for grains, all surrounded by a fence with two gates. The main gate would be located right outside the house, and the other smaller one would lead to the outbuildings. The house would have a garden with a few trees, and some might contain a bench for the owner and his wife, and a small pond to attract birds. All sounds very contemporary and perhaps idyllic, right? The kitchen was located at the back of the house and would be covered by a roof of straw or branches to simultaneously block out the scorching Egyptian sun and allow the escape of cooking fumes. In villas, the kitchen was located entirely outside the house. The kitchen area would be constructed along simple lines. In one corner, there would be an oven covered in a layer of mud or a stove. There would also be one or two structures for the grinding of grains or a tool known as rehi, 
which was made of two heavy stones placed on top of each other. The top one would have a hole in the middle and would be used to grind grain to make flour for bread. In another corner, there would be a basin for kneading dough. The kitchen would contain pots and pans for cooking and vessels for storing water. In more philosophical concepts, food philosophy if we can describe it as such, and table manners were evolved and they were quite sophisticated in a way. In ancient Egypt, pharaohs were, in many senses, gourmet and loved their luxury, but it seems when it came to food, they were inclined towards moderation. This is discussed repeatedly in Egyptian literature. An old kingdom text addressed to the vizier Kagemni advises, If you sit down to eat with many people, then look at the food with indifference, and if you desire it, then willpower does not take more than an instant, and it is shameful for a person to be greedy. One cup will water a whole crop. Ancient Egyptians ate while seated at small tables, laden with different kinds of meat, poultry, vegetables, fruits and loaves of bread. Peasants would sit on a straw mat, while the nobles would generally sit on stools or chairs, both groups eating with their fingers. Ladies and children would sit on cushions placed on the ground. Although pharaohs, too, are commonly depicted eating with their fingers, there is one such relief of Akhenaten and his family. Here are depictions of utensils such as different shaped plates and bowls for soups and other foods including sweet gulas, compote, appetizers and cream, as well as cutting knives, spoons and forks. Forks, of course, were used for cooking, not eating. A Roman expedition to find the source of the Nile that took place in 66 CE during the reign of Emperor Nero was impeded by Al-Sud. Al-Sud is a swampy lowland region of central South Sudan, 200 miles wide by 250 miles long. It is drained by headstreams of the White Nile, namely the Al-Jabal mountain Nile, which overflows in the flat saucer-like clay plain of the Sud to form innumerable swamps, lagoons and side channels, and several lakes along its course. The attempt of the Romans was therefore abandoned. Ptolemy, the Greek astronomer and geographer who lived in Alexandria, wrote around 150 CE that the White Nile originated in the high snow-covered mountains of the moon. For centuries, the source of the Nile was a mystery. It is hard to overstate the importance of the Nile to the life of ancient Egyptians. Nile is a major north-flowing river. It is perhaps the longest river in the world, rising from the Great Lakes in Central Africa and flowing through roughly 11 countries. Today, around 95% of Egypt's population lives just a few kilometers from the banks of this great river. It was probably a similar or even higher percentage in ancient times too. The river was also the ideal place for the papyrus plant to grow, a plant that is synonymous with ancient Egypt. Nilos, where the word in English Nile comes from, is the Greek name for the river. Probably originated from the Semitic root Nahal, meaning a valley or a river valley, and hence, by extension of the meaning, a river. The fact that the Nile, unlike other great rivers known to them, flowed from the south northward and was in flood at the warmest time of the year, was an unsolved mystery to the ancient Egyptians and Greeks. The ancient Egyptians called the river Ar, or Aur, black, in allusion to the color of the sentiments carried by the river when it is in flood. Nile mud 
is black enough to have given the land itself its oldest name, Kemet. Nutrient-rich soil of the Nile, black earth, Kemet. On the banks of the river dwelt people who were among the first to cultivate the arts of agriculture and the use of the plough. The origins of the river Nile might be long disputed, but may have emerged around 30 million years ago, driven by the motion of the Earth's mantle, the thick layer of rock between the Earth's core and crust. The Nile River is thought to have formed at the same time as the Ethiopian highlands. These being where one of the Nile River's major tributaries, called the Blue Nile, begins. The Blue Nile brings in the majority of the Nile River's water and most of the sediments in it, joining with the river's other tributary, the White Nile, in Sudan, before emptying out in the Mediterranean Sea, creating a massive delta with multiple branches spreading across the lowlands of Egypt. After traveling through Egypt, the ancient Greek historian Herodotus said that Egypt is the gift of the Nile. Ancient Egyptians considered the Nile to be a gift of the gods and they equated the Nile with life itself. Daily life was regulated by the rising and falling of the water level of the Nile and it determined the Egyptian calendar with its three seasons. The season of the flooding, the season of the sowing and the season of the harvesting. The season of flooding started with the brightest star, Sirius, appeared in the night sky and marked the Egyptian New Year. As said, Nile was equated with life. When the Nile flooded, it brought prosperity and fertility to the life surrounding it. But if the water level didn't rise enough, there would be famine. Or if the water level rose too much, people would lose their clay houses due to the flood. It was therefore important that the gods controlled the river. The two major gods involved in this process were Khnum and Hapi. Khnum, the ram-headed god of the Nile, was considered to be the lord of the water and the one who brought life and fertility to the riverbanks where plants and animals thrived. And since the water would bring forth clay after flooding, Khnum was also thought to be the creator of humans. Khnum was worshipped on Elephantine Island and his temple can be admired in Esna, located 60 kilometers south of Luxor. The god Hapi was the one controlling the flooding of the Nile. Usually Hapi appears as an androgynous figure in which the female and male sexes are combined. He has a masculine face and a feminine torso. This is to show him being both the father and the mother of the Nile and thus being able to bring fertility. Fascinatingly, the word happy actually meant happy in ancient Egyptian language due to the fertility and prosperity happy brought to the riverbanks. In multiple scenes in different temples, such as Karnak and Luxor temples, happy can be seen performing a ceremony, bundling lotus and papyrus together. This signified the union of Upper and Lower Egypt in prosperity, with lotus representing the former and papyrus representing the latter. There is another god worth mentioning here, the god Osiris, who played a role in one of the Nile's famous myths. According to the myth of Osiris, he was killed by his brother Set due to jealousy, and his body was chopped to 40 pieces and thrown in the Nile. The current of the Nile carried him to the Mediterranean Sea, where his wife Isis achieved finding and gathering his body parts. As the goddess of magic, Isis managed to revive Osiris and get pregnant. She gave birth to the god Horus and raised him in the papyrus field in the delta, away from his spiteful uncle Set. Later in life, 
Horus avenged his father Osiris by killing his uncle. Due to Osiris' death and resurrection, he became associated with the flooding and receding of the Nile. Scenes of the myth can be seen in the Temple of Horus in Edfu. Although the flood is a fairly irregular phenomenon, especially before the age of uh, damming the Nile in ancient Egypt, it occasionally varies in volume and date. Before it was possible to regulate the river, years of high or low flood, particularly a sequence of such years, resulted in crop failure, famine and disease. Of course, not every flood was of equal benefit. The proper rise is of 16 cubits. Lower water leaves some areas unirrigated. Higher water delays things because it recedes more slowly. At 12 cubits, Egypt senses famine. At 13, it is still hungry. 14 cubits cause cheerfulness. 15 confidence. 16 delight. So wrote the Roman naturalist Pliny. And that was true many, many centuries before. And many centuries after. A cubit measures the distance from the fingertip to the elbow. 20 inches or so. Thus, the optimum flood would reach some 27 feet above uh, the low water. The historian Herodotus, our Greek friend, was reminded of his native seas. When the Nile invades the country, only the cities can be projecting above, most resembling the islands in the Aegean, for the rest of the Egypt becomes a sea, while the cities alone project. So when this happens, they travel by boat, not along the river channels, but through the middle of the plain. Thus, some sailing upstream from Naucratis to Memphis sails directly past the pyramids. Upper Egypt is a floodplain, a valley rarely more than a dozen miles wide, bounded by cliffs. In Lower Egypt, to the north, the river divides to form a delta so extensive that it contains twice as much agricultural land as the Upper Egypt. Each year, the Nile floods, fed by the summer rains on the Ethiopian plateau. At flood, the volume of water increases on average 15-fold, in years of high flood 45 times. At Aswan, in the south, the flow rises from 60 million cubic yards at low Nile to more than 900 million cubic yards at high Nile. Each flood carries 110 million tons of sediment into Egypt, the water turning red. The flood plain is convex. The river builds up its banks as natural barriers, rising above the plain, to either side. The flood rises over these banks, or bridges them, and the waters flow easily outwards towards the edges of the valley. At high water, a period of perhaps 10 days, the river may reach 25 feet, and more above its low, and the plain is covered to a depth of up to 6 feet. Only dikes and the towns and villages on higher ground stand out above the inland sea. The flood drowns roads, except those on embankments. Most of the land is now navigable, at least by boats of shallow draft. Men and animals must crowd together on high ground and live on the stores. From mid-June onwards, they kept an eye on one of their two nilometers, stone basins which received the water and measured its level on a graduated pillar. All being well, the water began to rise late June. In late July, it overflowed the banks of the main river. In late August and early September, it reached its height. From mid or late September, it retreated, rapidly at first and then by slow degrees, returning to its normal bed by November. Then the land could be sown in November slash December and then grown crops harvested in April and May. 
Such are the traditional three seasons, Indonesian, sowing and harvest. It was the Indonesian that divided summer figs from winter figs. So here, in this river, in this region, 5,000 years ago and more, we have some of the major innovations of humankind. As we said, agriculture, the use of the plough, and of course, writing. We cannot overstate the importance of writing here, because it was um, an innovation that started more or less simultaneously in ancient Egypt and, of course, Mesopotamia. And um, the ancient Egyptians with the hieroglyphs, they left us so much information about their civilization. And uh, writing was considered sacred, and the ancient Egyptians referred to their writing system as uh, the God's words, which was translated by the Greeks as hieroglyphs, so sacred carvings, where we get our word from. Many festivals existed in ancient Egyptian society, being an agricultural one. They held celebrations in honor of Renenunet, the goddess of harvest, and Min, the god of fertility, both of which were held in the summer. During the month of Kehak, feasts for the plowing of the land were held, and the god Osiris was celebrated for being resurrected after death, like the land which dies and then is reborn every season. Annual feasts to honor the gods were also held, as well as other local celebrations to each region. An important religious celebration in the times of the New Kingdom was the beautiful Feast of Opet, in which Amun, the official god of the state, travelled from his temple in Karnak to the temple in Luxur. The feast would last almost a month, and the king would present many sacrificial offerings, including meat, poultry, fruit, milk, bread, beer, as well as flowers and perfume. This was important because it renewed the legitimacy of Opet. A celebration generally associated with the ancient Egyptians is the Feast of the Harvest, commonly known today as Sham al-Nsim. The origin of the word Sham is the ancient Egyptian Shmo, which means the season of harvest or summer. Sham al-Nsim symbolized rebirth, and the ancient Egyptians believed that this day marked the beginning of creation. This particular celebration was famous for its variety of foods, which included full ripe green chickpeas that symbolized the coming of spring, and lettuce which was popular because of its connection to the mean, god of fertility and reproduction. I'll be back after this short break. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. 
Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Evidence from pre-dynastic archaeological sites suggests that Egypt has known how to make bread for about 5,800 years. Bread manufacture in ancient Egypt is well documented from wall images and inscriptions found on tombs and temples. Egyptians of the Old Kingdom baked conical loaves in a pot that the ancient tomb scenes label Beja. These bell-shaped bread pots were made with uh, walls nearly 2 centimeters thick from a clay mixed with straw, chaff and even sand. They are sometimes so poorly fired that the great Giza excavator, George Reisner, called it madware. The Beja exterior has a rough surface, with a ridge and a bulbous extra-thick round bottom. I'll post some pictures of it uh, in the show notes. The ridge may have helped the bakers stack uh, the pots over an open fire, as shown in tube scenes and figurines, a preheating as such before baking with the dough placed in one pot upside down over another in egg carton-like pits. The interior of Beja is always conical and smooth, the shape of the finished loaf. We think the potters made Beja pots by hand over a cone of wood or stone. Beer was also essential, and it was treated principally as a type of food. It was consumed daily and in great quantities, especially at religious festivals and celebrations. Beer was essential for laborers like those who built the pyramids of Giza, who were provided with a daily ration of one and one third gallons, so over ten pints. Yet it still had divine status, with several gods and goddesses associated with beer. Hathor, the goddess of love, dance and beauty, was also known the lady of drunkenness. The ceramic vessel is key to the ancient Egyptian fermenting process, as its porous interior is the ideal surface for the wild yeast culture to grow. It is also cooler to the touch than the ambient temperature, which could have been an obvious advantage to brewing in a hot, arid climate. It had a wide, open mouth to allow air to circulate and encourage the wild yeast to enter. The slight evaporation from its walls also cooled the fermentation. The beer was unlikely to have been decanted from many of these uh, large ceramic vessels, so a drinking straw was a must. Many academics believe the straw was to prevent sentiment being consumed by the drinker. There is an element to that, but also it was likely to be about um, personal hygiene, as many people would have drunk from the same vessel. It was a community 
thing. So a bit like days, one of these fishbowl cocktails which served in bars and clubs. Egyptian straws have been made from clay with holes or filter at the end to sieve out some of the sentiment. There are several much later, early 20th century examples in the museum's collection made from reeds, which may also have been a likely material for ancient Egyptian straws. Ingredient-wise for the beer, uh, the most noticeable absence in ancient Egyptian beer is hops, as these were not in use until the medieval period. The grain too is different, as ancient grain would have been higher in protein and predates modern varieties of wheat and barley. For ancient Egyptian beer, they used emmer perhaps, the earliest precursor to modern wheat, which was grown widely in the Fertile Crescent, and um, it has been identified um, by Delu and Samuel on brewery excavations in ancient workers' village in Amarna, which was built around 1350 BC, and so hence we're talking about almost 3,500 years ago. In another tomb, archaeologists found beer mash nearly 5,000 years old in the city of the pyramid builders, where it was basically the place that uh, the workers for the pyramids lived near the pyramids. They found granaries and beer vats. Analysis of this proto-beer has shown that the mix included the chaff of barley and also fruits, making the mix perhaps sweeter. Aside from beer, ancient Egyptians, they also loved their wine. There was a recent excavation which uh, yielded the 5,000-year-old wine uh, jars uh, in Abydos, and some of them, they were found intact. So it was a joint Egyptian, German and Austrian archaeological mission working in the tomb of Meret Neith, a possible woman of significance in the first dynasty. And they made discoveries that shed further light in this mysterious figure in ancient Egyptian history, and obviously also finding these 5,000-year-old wine jars. Some of these uh, findings, some of these wine jars, had intact uh, stoppers and contained the well-preserved remains of this wine. Inscriptions also indicate that uh, this uh, woman of significance, Merit Nath, has been in charge of central government offices, like the Treasury, which lends credence uh, to the theory that she played a historically significant role. I'll post a link again for this uh, article, because uh, it's more about um, the, this woman, this character, and her importance in, in ancient Egyptian society. And less about wine, but yeah, I mentioned the wine here because also they drank a lot of wine in ancient Egypt. And this finding tells us that it's almost 5,000 years old, this uh, habit. Egyptians also used the vegetable beet in their cuisines and as a medicinal remedy, but mainly the recipes found are focused on the beet leaves. It was not consumed uh, as a root vegetable. There was obviously in the everyday diet, there was many vegetables and legumes. So you had onions and cucumbers and leeks and lettuce and radishes and garlic. Of course, the main food was bread. A lot of it was like flatbreads, but also they had a sort of uh, sourdough, we said, baked in uh, badger. There were breads that they were expanding, basically. There was a lot of porridge with figs, honey and dates. There were chickpeas and lentils for stews. And of course, lots of fresh fish from uh, the river and many grapes and pomegranates too. The ancient Egyptians believed in afterlife as we know. And obviously, the mummy find also food for the afterlife to take, for the dead people to take with them. So there's mummified pieces of meat found in many occasions. Another interesting fact about ancient Egyptian health and food-related problems is that um, they did have uh, diabetes 
diabetes was known and it was called the sugar sickness. And uh, they could um, diagnose it by basically letting someone to urinate on the ground and see if there were ants attracted to it. They also ate uh, molochia, lotus, papyrus, okra, watermelon, which was a little bit different. It was more, a lot more seeds and a lot, a lot less uh, flesh, if I'm not mistaken. And there was coming from southeastern Africa. Fish included tilapia and catfish and all the uh, perch, Nile perch and so on. Another very important part um, of uh, Egyptian diet was uh, the tiger nut, which are not nuts, but uh, tubers growing underground. And they seem to have recently a resurgence in their use. Not in Egypt today, but uh, more like a superfood. And um, I think I've heard that they've been cultivated in Spain for export. And um, basically, tiger nuts are edible tubers found at the end of the cypress grass. And um, they were the primary ingredient in what could be considered the oldest known Egyptian recipe, which dates from the 15th century BC. A tomb painting interred with a vizier Rekimeri details how to make cone-shaped loaves of ground tiger nuts and honey. The scene depicts figures grinding tiger nuts with long pestles and shaping the tuber-honey mixture with both hands into tall and pointy cones. These images of tiger nut cones were meant to please the sun god Amun on Rekmiher's behalf. But tiger nuts were not just used for special occasions. Egyptians also added tiger nuts to medicine and perfume and ate them prepared in several ways. Some devoured tiger nuts raw, but others preferred it flavored, boiled in beer or roasted atop a fire. Of course, they were popular, but not as popular as bread and beer, which formed the bedrock of the ancient Egyptian cuisine. And bakers usually made bread with emmer wheat, as we said, and barley. And in fact, um, we know that well, historians have recorded 14 distinct hieroglyphs for bread. To learn more about the process of baking bread, researchers looked uh, at tomb paintings again. One of the most vivid bread baking scenes comes from the 5th dynasty tomb of Tai in Saqqara. One painting shows beer and bread production in tandem, with scenes of cooks making bapir, or beer bread, and the use of beja, our ceramic bread molds for baking. The scene shows workers cooking bread outdoors through a process called stack heating, which involves baking bread dough inside two preheated beja balls clamped together, as we explained earlier on. Additional tomb paintings convey many more steps of the baking process, such as workers kneading dough with both hands or mixing bread with their feet. Another baking scene from Ramses III's tomb suggests a possible recipe for emmer wheat bread that was sprinkled with grape juice to leaven it and boil before baking. Drawn in motion, the workers smash grapes with their feet, shape bread into spirals and bake the bread in a vertical tanur-style oven. These images tell one story about ancient Egyptian cuisine. However, it is important to note that many did not have the same access to this food culture. The wealthy dead could command elaborate tomb paintings, especially food items and even food mummies of many varieties. According to Egyptian food historian Menat Allah Eldori, food remains from the construction of the Giza pyramids show evidence of this divide. The wealthy ate larger cuts of meat and, and, and a varied diet, while simple workmen ate poorer cuts of meat and simpler foods. But besides this scant evidence, not much is known about the class disparities in ancient Egyptian foodways. 
and it's uh, miraculous that this uh, ancient Egyptian tomb paintings survives for thousands of years because of the dry climate in the arid desert and all buried. But um, the vibrant paintings within Ramses III tomb, when they were uh, when they were found, then they nearly vanished in 19th century due to floods. So basically, again, historians and archaeologists worked tirelessly to restore, reconstruct, and upload these photographs of the paintings uh, for future research. So we're always eternally grateful to these people for saving uh, a, sl- a slice of the past. And so let's um, have a little recipe here of tiger nut cones, Rekmires uh, tiger nut cones. For, so for 10 small cones, we need one cup of tiger nuts raw. And I think they can be purchased online or at many, you know, kind of health food stores. A quarter of a cup honey, a quarter of a cup olive oil, and half a cup of uh, dates chopped. So we measure one cup of tiger nuts. We pour half a cup of hot water over the nuts and let them soak for 20 minutes. Then drain off the water and use a food processor to grind the nuts into powder. Add the tiger nuts, honey, oil and dates all at once to a pan. Mix occasionally on a medium heat for 2 minutes. Then turn the heat to a low simmer so the honey doesn't burn. Continue mixing for the next 5 minutes. Turn off the heat and pour the tiger nut mix onto a plate. Let it cool for 20 minutes. Form 10 1 inch diameter balls with your hands. Shape the balls into cones and stand them straight up. This is it, pretty simple, right? Although ancient Egyptians relied on fish for animal protein most of the time, they obtained the vast amount of their calories from the earth. The rich topsoil of the Nile Basin can measure up to 70 feet deep at some points. It was a farmer's utopia, in a sense, and after Aket, the season of Indonesian, the villages planted the first seeds. During Peret, the growing season, which lasted from October to February, farmers tended their fields. Shemu was a season of harvest and abundance. They could either carry water by hand, by camel, or would dig irrigation canals from the Nile River to water the rich black kemet of the fields. As we said, farmers cultivated all manners of crops. Barley for beer, cotton for clothing, melons and pomegranates, and figs for an evening meal. But the three that stood out was wheat, flax and papyrus. Obviously wheat was ground into bread, flax was spun into linen, and papyrus dried into a paper substitute to use for writing. As we said, they were master bakers. Commoner foods of the old kingdom included, as we said, beer, pulses and onions, and of course, bread. Mummified food was found, um, and there was a variety of resin-coated foods. It was found and recovered from the tomb of uh, the great-grandfather of King Tut, his great-grandfather and great-grandmother, Yuya and Tuyu. At the time of his discovery, in 1905, the burial still held the two original mummified occupants and some of their funerary equipment, although it had been robbed more than once in antiquity. So, luckily, archaeologists found uh, and discovered 17 wooden boxes of food, each carved into a shape of what contained. So, a, le- a leg of veal wrapped in linen, for instance, as well, uh, as, well as a shoulder of antelope, three geese, two ducks, and small birds that might have been um, pigeons, actually. So, Yuya and Tuyu believed that these delicacies would be magically available to them in the next life. In King uh, Tutankhamun's uh, tomb, they found a ceramic jar almost uh, 8 inches tall, which retained the residue of a liquid 
that looked like uh, honey. Other jars recovered from the tomb of uh, King Tutankhamun contained uh, wines. Each was labelled with a, with a vineyard where the grapes were grown, the chief vintner and the year of the pharaoh's reign when the wine was made. At least some of it was red wine, identified by high-tech testing of residue. As for meats, four dozen wooden boxes held a variety of victual mummies, many cuts of beef on the bone, nine ducks, four geese and various small birds. No fish, however, even though the Nile was uh, teeming with them. I guess um, the usual explanation is that the offerings were, were going to be most high-class food, because this is for eternity. So yeah, things like pigs and sheep and uh, fish, they were food part of the normal everyday diet, uh, but apparently no one could imagine um, you know, craving them <laughs> in the afterlife. What you have is uh, lovely pieces of poultry and beef, choice cuts and game, and all these uh, tender, nice, meaty parts. So in a sense, people packed uh, their internal picnic baskets with a gourmet wish list, the things they knew that they would enjoy eating forever and ever. Once there was a man called Kunanup. He was a peasant on the Salt Valley, whose wife was called Merit. And this peasant said to this wife of his, Look, I am going down to Egypt to buy provisions there for my children. Go and measure for me the grain which is left in the storehouse from yesterday. And he measured out of her six gallons of grain. And this peasant said to his wife of his, Look, twenty gallons of grain are given to you and your children for provisions, but you shall make these six gallons of grain into bread and beer for every day for me to live on. This peasant then went down to Egypt, having loaded his asses with reeds and fine palms natron and salt, and stuffs from farafra, leopard skins and wolf hides, pebbles and serpentine, wild mint plants and imbi fruits, tebu and uben plants, with all the fair produce of the salt valley. This is from the tale of the eloquent peasant, a literary work from the Middle Kingdom of Egypt, so between 2040 to 1782 BCE, which illustrates the value society placed on the concept of justice and equality under the law. In the story, the peasant named Kunanup is beaten and robbed by an empty nakt, a wealthy landowner, who then tells him there is no use in complaining to the authorities because no one would listen to a poor man. The rest of the tale relates on how Kunanup, believing in the power of justice, refers the wealthy landowner and wins the case. Let's now check some recipes from uh, either inspired from ancient Egypt or from foods uh, that we found in ancient Egypt. This one is tuna in papyrus. And uh, for this you need eight thin slices of tuna, three tablespoons of, uh, of uh, vinegar, one teaspoon of cumin, one teaspoon of salt, two teaspoons of honey, two large papyrus leaves, four tablespoons of mint, 50 grams of walnuts, one tablespoon of olive oil, one teaspoon of uh, sweet wine and uh, one teaspoon of uh, either fish sauce or some kind of uh, fermented sauce just for extra flavoring. So rub the fish with salt, cumin and the, the vinegar, add the honey, place on papyrus leaf, then cover with another leaf. Place with the leaves in a hot oven for approximately 20-25 minutes. Mix the rest of the ingredients well and as soon as the fish is out of the oven, part the papyrus leaves gently 
drizzle mixture on the top of the fish and serve. Tuna in papyrus was popular in Alexandria during Ptolemaic times, where the Greek ingredients such as sweet wine, walnuts and tuna fish were common. Tuna fish obviously is very popular in the Mediterranean uh, region and it was, it was as a fish caught around the Mediterranean and usually salted and dried. And then, yeah, then mixed with the local ingredients such as papyrus and um, cumin, mint and honey. And of course, uh, as I said, you can use uh, a bit of fish sauce to bring this uh, more of authentic uh, Greco-Roman element into your uh, food. Onions were by far the most popular vegetable in ancient Egypt. And it was a, a popular food for laymen and priests alike. And they, they were used to flavor many dishes. Herodotus even mentions onions and bread as a staple diet for pyramid builders. Apicius reports that onion used as an ingredient in a sauce for grilled fish. Onions used to be worn as garlands by the followers of Sokar, god of rebirth, in Memphis. Both garlic and onion were also used as medicine in ancient Egypt. Radish was popular and... Um, though in very different form from the modern variety. Radish was mentioned as a ration for the pyramid builders and radish seeds were steeped uh, in wine. They were believed to be as beneficial as the roots itself. Radish juice was taken as a medicine for the heart. A green plant called Molochia was very popular and still is very, very popular amongst the Egyptian population. And uh, it was described in Greco-Roman times by Theophrastus as a plant growing naturally in the wheat fields with a long stem and leaves resembling those of wild berries. This was gathered, laid out dry, then rubbed into a paste and given to animals as a source of food along with the flower that bloomed with it, which was yellow and as, and as small as a sesame. Nowadays it's commonly grown in the Delta and Middle Egypt. Mallow and purslane are popular and cooked and eaten very Commonly. And here's another recipe for you uh, lentil soup in ancient Egypt. So, for two people, uh, get 300 grams of uh, brown lentils, one red medium onion, one tablespoon of uh, ghee or sesame paste, one teaspoon of salt, half a teaspoon of black pepper, one teaspoon of cumin, one teaspoon of anise, and one teaspoon of dried dill, and about half a liter of uh, water or stock. So wash the lentils and place them in water and simmer for 15 minutes. Add anise and cumin, mince the onions, fry in the ghee until it's golden in color. Add lentil mixture and dill. Season with salt and pepper and serve. There is substantial evidence that the ancient Egyptians were pioneers in the use of herbs and spices. The most famous appears to be anise, which was known for its calming effect and mustard, which was commonly used in medicinal recipes. Coriander was often placed with the deceased in the tomb, so two baskets of coriander were found in Tutankhamun's uh, tomb, as we said. Caraway was mentioned as far as back as in the lists of offerings of the 5th uh, dynasty. The ancient Egyptians also used cumin in food and in some medicines, as well as in oil. And uh, oils were expertly extracted from olives, caraway, linen seeds, lettuce, sunflower and sesame seeds. The oils extracted were used for food, lighting, mummification, ointments and medicine, and of course for hair products. The pharaonic name for okra mentioned in the Harris papyrus is bano, 
Gaston Maspero, the French Egyptologist, briefly mentions finding the remains of this plant. Okra now is a very popular and one of the most commonly eaten dishes in Egypt and is cooked in several ways. Wika okra, a popular upper Egyptian dish, requires the use of a mefrak to mask the vegetables, a method that itself extends from pharaonic times. And this is it for our brief um, introduction to ancient Egyptian food, traveling as far back as 5,000 years ago and extending for roughly 3,000 years. It's been an amazing adventure uh, learning about um, ancient Egyptian uh, culinary habits. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Remember to become subscribers to Patreon if you want uh, the episodes ad-free and early with extra content. And uh, please uh, rate and review this episode wherever you get your podcasts from. I've been Thomas Dinas, and this was the Delicious Legacy Podcast. See you soon. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.